You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, hey, episode 92 with Douglas Bunnell. Today's episode, we're talking about the difference and the similarities between what we call evidence-based treatment, specifically CBT, like cognitive therapies and psychodynamic psychotherapy, which is the deep work therapy that I do. Now it's long been bone I have to pick, or is that the right metaphor? I don't know. Um, that people always talk about, I want CBT for eating disorders, I want evidence-based treatment and like you do psychoanalysis, that's like not evidence-based. So first of all, it it is. Talk about Jonathan Shedler and all of his work. There is a lot of evidence-based psychoanalytic stuff, uh, research out there. But I guess the thing that bothers me, which is why I wanted to have Doug on, is to talk about what it actually means when you're asking for CBT or evidence-based, what it actually means when we're talking about psychodynamic psychotherapies or deep work therapies, how it can benefit you, but just like what we're actually talking about so that you're not spewing and meaning nothing accurate from it. So if you don't, if you don't know Doug, you know Doug, but if you don't know him, here's a little bit about him. He is a force in the eating disorder world. So he's a clinical psychologist based in Connecticut, and he's been working with eating disorders for like 30 years, I, I don't know, decades. He is the past board chair of NIDA, which is the National Eating Disorder Association and recipient of their Lifetime Achievement Award. So like, yeah, a force. He has helped to design, develop, and manage PHP and residential programs for several national eating disorder programs. He's been affiliated with like big names like Montanito, Renfrew. He's a fellow of the Academy for Eating Disorders and a certified eating disorder supervisor at IDA. And he has co-authored tons of chapters and journal articles that have to do with the treatment of eating disorders and training clinicians. So a lot of how Doug is going to talk is sort of through that perspective of having trained so many clinicians from straight from grad school, knowing absolutely nothing to really honing in on skills and getting that sort of like second nature vibe going on. He is currently a senior clinical advisor for Eating Recovery Center and Pathlight Mood and Anxiety Treatment Programs. He's a co-editor along with Dr. Margot Mean and Dr. Beth McGilley of Treatment of Eating Disorders, Bridging the Research Practice Gap. So Doug's been around the block. He knows what he's talking about. And this is a, it's a really fun conversation. I did actually learn, I didn't know this before, that Doug was not previously before his career, a smart ass. So you guys, we get that version of him, but he was much more proper back then. So let's just jump right in. Thanks for joining us, Doug. I'm very excited about this. <laughs> My pleasure. Really, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So 
This is a conversation that I've had with so many people, especially because they know me as the deep work therapy eating disorder person. So, so some people who know a bit about psychodynamic stuff, they're like, well, how does that work with eating disorders? And then some people who don't know anything about it are like, well, what is that? And what does it even mean? So I, I think we should start perhaps from the basics and talking about what is evidence-based and, you know, people are looking for this. Oh, well, I need evidence-based treatment. So maybe just even defining like, what is evidence-based treatment? <laughs> it depends on how deeply you want to go into this, but I, I think the conventional definition that, that stands up is one that was defined several years ago, like a couple, maybe two decades ago now, but it's usually thought of as like three principles. One is empirical research, right? Uh-huh. The other is clinician experience or, or you know, a healthcare professional experience. And the third is patient or individual preference. So if you're really talking about the full three-dimensional definition of evidence-based treatment, it needs to incorporate all three of those dimensions. What people tend to hear is that it's just the empirical research and that that's sort of, you know, case closed. And like with anything else in behavioral health and certainly anything else regarding eating disorders, nothing is ever that simple. So... Of course not. Yeah. So, I mean, I think... My expectation for, you know, a, a new clinician moving into being a mid-career and then a later career clinician is sort of you, you are extremely familiar, if not fully certified and trained in the conventional evidence-based treatments. And for eating disorders right now, that's a fairly limited range of techniques. If you really go by mm-hmm. the strict definitions, we're talking about CBTE essentially for, well, for eating disorders, mostly just for bulimia and um, binge eating disorder. You've got FBT for anorexia nervosa, certainly for adolescents, arguably for younger adults or later teens and so forth. And, you know, a little bit of IPT, interpersonal psychotherapy for bulimia. So you can make a case that those have the best empirical support, but there are real limitations to those things. They don't work for everybody. Not every patient wants that treatment. Many patients have, I've spent the last half of my career, at least largely working in higher levels of care. So we're seeing people who are more severely ill or have had a more protracted course, which means in in a way they've had lower intensity treatments that have not been effective yet. And so you're looking at plan B, like we may have Mm -hmm. led with plan A. And this is sort of my general sort of stance on things is if in doubt, go with plan A. Like, you know, if you're seeing someone (laughs) brand new, you know, with bulimia nervosa, you probably should be starting in your head and starting in treatments with CBTE, at least sort of framing it up that way, and then trying to understand, okay, you know, what's the patient's experience of that? Is that something he or she really wants to be doing? Is there a prior treatment history of success or failure with that? Are you the person to be delivering that treatment? Yeah. Well, so many questions. Let me just yeah. stop you. The, the first part that you said, the three prongs, So the empirical research is something that we're most familiar with. That's actual research conducted and whether it's been tested and whatever else is in, you know, involved in that. But what's the other two? Can you break those down? It would be some, I mean, I'll just categorize it as a sort of clinician experience. Like, you know, what is anecdotally or experientially worked for people or what you're good at delivering to some extent, maybe that's more so in behavioral health, you've seen this before. And you're often left, like there are limits to what the empirical research can tell you about what you do next. 
and the clinical wisdom and patient preference in a way i think disproportionately would be more at the what if plan a doesn't work we need to sort of then be looking at what what do we do next and at that point often and my experience has been even particularly with eating disorders you know the evidence base ebt's can get you to a point and that may be great for let's say 50% that's a debate mm-hmm. but let's say 50% then what are you doing and then what are you doing next usually has to involve well i'm going to be guided by principles not necessarily by empirical data what do i think will work what's conceptually consistent how am i understanding this particular individual's preferences needs histories experiences and so forth vulnerabilities assets all that stuff and trying to come up with a more comprehensive mm-hmm. approach and that probably segues into like why we're talking today because i think it's really largely in that group let's say that 50% who have not responded necessarily really really well to the conventional ebts could be we've got to go deeper yeah that to me seems like non controversial that you yeah okay so then let's just break this down in the beginning just in case somebody doesn't necessarily know too much about evidence based treatment they just know that it sounds nice i mean i wouldn't want to look for something that wasn't evidence-based if there was an evidence-based out there. It's sort of like the gold standard. So if we're talking about there's these three prongs, that there's empirical research, and then there's also the subjective and individual experience of each clinician and client and how that sort of comes together. Mm -hmm. But first of all, before we go into perhaps limitations for maybe some of the 50%, what does CBTE or C cognitive behavioral therapy for eating disorders even look like? Like, is it a manualized, you go in for 15 times and you just do a bunch of things and homework and that's the end of it? Are we talking about as written or as delivered? If we're talking about as written, it's fairly manualized. And so in research, and this is another more nuanced sort of critique on evidence-based, well, the research on evidence-based treatments is they less so, let me just say that, less so than it used to be, but they tended to be fairly restricted samples of patients and with pretty tight manuals on what you had to do and what you couldn't do and things like that. And we know from lots of research, particularly in the U.S., most people who say they're doing CBT are barely doing anything related to CBT. So so that just throws all this out the window. (laughs) Well, I mean, it certainly complicates it. So if you're in a research study, you're delivering CBTE, you're doing the full package and the full package would involve Lots of psychoeducation, explanations about the cognitive model, of focus on bulimia nervosa, on the impact of overvalued thoughts about shape, weight, and eating, some understanding and exploration of how negative mood or negative emotional experiences drive restriction that drive compensatory binge eating or you know reactive binge eating and then drive the compensations like vomiting or more restriction. And that's the essence of that model of neurosis that mm-hmm. experiences and thoughts drive dietary restriction, drive binge eating, drive attempts to compensate, and then you're into a feedback loop that can be self-perpetuating. That's a gross oversimplification, but then sure. so you're working with dietary logs and thought logs, like really trying to identify patterns of timing of eating, situational or circumstances that drive eating or drive, you know, overeating. It's very cognitive-based. You're looking at distortions. You're doing Socratic questioning around explanations you 
make for yourself about why you ate and things like that. And is that the and then what and then what and then what questions? Yes, it could be. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that would be one way to do it. But it's also a lot of active listening. There's aspects of motivational interviewing in it, like just sort of like you know. So I'm not sure I understand this. Say more about you say you want this, but you're doing that mm-hmm. and delivered well, like any psychotherapy. It can be warm, engaging, thoughtful, emotionally responsive, and great. There's nothing like the image of it, the negative images that it's robotic or mechanistic. And when you watch a good therapist do CBTE, they're riffing and playing and engaging and responding. So there's nothing inherently robotic about it, but it is Mm -hmm. pretty focused on behavioral change, right? So establishing first stages for binge eating or bulimia nervosa would be establishing a regular pattern of eating. Like, so we'll get to this, but it's not that psychodynamic therapists aren't doing this too, okay? So we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. A, a CBT therapist would be really early on prioritizing record-keeping, prioritizing a mm-hmm. regular pattern of eating, like don't go more than four hours without eating something because in those periods of extended restriction, you're potentiating or increasing the odds in the binge eating. Mm-hmm. Then you'd start to introduce, you'd look at different types of food, different situations. You'd start to get into issues around beliefs and sort of well, cognitions and beliefs about dieting, about thinness, about body image. In some of the CBT versions, they're sort of modules. You can either go sort of to body image issues or to dieting issues. Most folks are doing both and there's considerable overlap. Yeah. But, you know, so it, it is a shorter term treatment and shorter term can, you know, in studies, it could be like 20 sessions in real life. It could be a year's worth of sessions, but it's not open-ended and there's a real focus on behavioral change and symptom stabilization, you know, appropriate. So if somebody asked a, a therapist who is providing CBTE, how long will this take? Will they have an answer? Cause I, I don't usually have an answer for that. <laughs> A number answer. Well, I'm going to caveat this and just, I'm not a full, you know, focused cbt so I don't know what most people are saying. I suspect most people that I'm familiar with or who I'm familiar with say something like, we're not really sure how long it'll take, but we're talking about weeks, not months or years. And we should see changes pretty quickly. And if we're not seeing changes pretty quickly, meaning in weeks, then we need to pause and think, what else are we missing or what else do we need to do? So I think the emphasis mm-hmm. would be that change should can take a while and there will be ups and downs for sure, but we should see definite changes within the first four to six weeks. And there's a whole research now. Yeah. I mean, this is going off a little bit, so we can edit this out if we need to. But this whole issue of early responders, I think is fascinating. You sort of... What is that? Early responders, particularly within CBT and FBT, you get a really pretty clear marker by let's say four to five weeks, whether this is going well or not. And you can tell pretty much mm-hmm. within four weeks whether someone's going to really flourish in this treatment or not. And you know, you can go back and look at the data after you've done a full course and go, oh, we could have picked these early responders out and said, we know they're, well, we're statistically confident that they're going to do well. And the folks mm-hmm. that were not making changes at four to six weeks end up doing very or as well, certainly, mm-hmm. which sort of sets up this possibility of going like, okay, can we have a stepped model where we lead with the evidence-based treatments? And this is what like many of the national health service company or um, countries do. Like you lead with a particular treatment. If it doesn't work, then you go on to something else. Whereas in, in the U.S., 
we just, you know, if you happen to go to a therapist who's does CBT, that's what they're going to do. If you happen to go to a therapist who's dynamic, that's what they're going to do. Ideally, you've got someone who could lead with the basics that we have, you know, data to support being effective, but not stick with it if it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely be able to pivot. You know what it's making me think of? The work that someone would do with a dietitian is pretty similar to this. I mean, I don't know if they're having thought logs, but they're definitely having food logs and they're definitely changing their behaviors immediately. And within the first four to six weeks, we probably have a good idea of how this is going to go. Yep. Yep. CBT, this may be a little controversial, but it's a podcast. So I guess we could like. We do controversial here. That's (laughs) That's our MO. (laughs) Good. Personally speaking, I don't think CBT, as written in the manuals and the books and so forth, has been really clear about the role of the dietitian in treatment for eating disorders. And I think this will be the controversial part. Many would probably argue, maybe not out loud, but in their own heads, that necessarily need a dietitian for most of the people. I mean, be clear, CBT largely is for or effective for bulimia and binge eating right? Mm -hmm. Less so. I mean, there's very little evidence that it's by itself any more effective for anorexia than anything else for people with anorexia. But it's unclear in the CBT model how the dietitian can work. Clinically, I think it'd be really helpful just in troubleshooting foods, you know, that are scary, Mm -hmm. you know, helping work through sort of the food hierarchies, doing some basic education about macronutrient stuff and satiety and, and that stuff. So I think many clinicians, like by the time you and I get to wherever we are in this, we could speak dietitian a little bit. Like, you know, sure. yeah, <laughs> but at some point, you know, someone's really struggling. Like for me, if I have someone with bulimia, who's also reporting a lot of stomach distress, like really they feel their anxiety in their stomach around certain foods and so forth. I'm probably going to bring a dietitian, like prioritize bringing a dietitian in because I think he or she can really help them with like identifying foods that are easier or less fearful and, and things like that. So huh, that's so interesting. I don't know. Perhaps it's because I'm not, I, I definitely do not identify as a CBT person. Although a lot of this I do do in the beginning, I don't want that kind of responsibility of like, you know, taking on the food part. Plus it seems like it's a really big time suck if we're going to spend our therapy time on this. No, I mean, that that's the other element, right? But then we can really go off track here a little bit, but you know, how many people can afford to see both? What yeah, access well, do people have that's to a both? Big problem. Right. <laughs> it is a time sink, but I'm going to switch gears a little bit or just switch sides a little bit. The critique on psychodynamic therapists, much of which is like overwrought and just like antiquated, like, you know, or you still have people on the couch and you're doing the blank screen. Don't, so yeah. it's, you know, all that business, which is just so far from the truth of what a dynamic therapist does in general, and then particularly with eating disorders. But psychodynamic therapists are definitely vulnerable to the criticism that they won't talk enough about food. They'll see food as almost Uh like, that's not the real issue. They may not say it that way, but that's the message. Uh, Okay. Interesting. We're not talking about the real issue. And what I, you know, training therapists to be able to work both behaviorally, cognitively, and dynamically is, yeah, you you have to talk about the food. Food is arguably the most meaningful relationship these people who are suffering from eating disorders have. You have to speak that and you need to be competent in speaking about that. And you have to like, and if you're not competent, you need to actually, in a respectful way, say, I need you to teach me what this means to your patient and be open to that. 
But to avoid talking about food as a dynamic therapist, because we want to talk about developmental history or attachment issues, or all of which could be hugely relevant. But to say we can't talk about food because we can talk about that is missing a lot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I often say if the conversation is either only about food or not about food at all, there's an issue. Yeah. There has to be some sort of medium. Um, But even just going back to the dietitian piece, I'm thinking about a lot of the dietitians that I I work with. And in terms of when we talk about restriction, restriction, it's obviously very connected to uh, any sort of binge eating. Mm -hmm. And so if we're talking about that CBT for bulimia or binge eating disorder, there's always the question in the back of my mind, is this person restricting? I don't actually know if I can tell that. So part of me is wondering the argument of, is the dietitian necessary? Even just to answer that question, I would always defer to them. I understand that point. And I think there's something to that. All right. The, the somewhat controversial response would be, you know, if they're not restricting to a point where it's obvious and there's actually an issue of them being malnourished or something like that, it's almost like the actual amount of caloric restriction is less significant than the the goal of like people wake up in the morning saying today's the day I'm going to like restrict my eating. Yeah. It's almost more the cognitive restraint as opposed to the actual okay, dietary restriction. Now that so we might be talking about higher, not higher functioning, but people who are more on the disordered eating side of the spectrum. Yes, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. And if someone makes sense, if someone's binging and purging the need or the, you know, the confidence I'd have about doing this solo with their dietitian would go way down. Like someone's purging, yeah. then we need to sort of really be paying a lot more attention to what the actual balance of nutrition is and, uh-huh. and work on that. So, yeah, I mean, I often say this also for some reason, I don't know if you get this, but maybe not in your position right now, but so often people call and they say, I already have a therapist, but I want someone who's just going to do the eating disorder. So it's obviously not my cup of tea. I try to explain to the best of my ability, how eating disorders are just like a little sliver of your life. And the rest of it is so interconnected and the splitting that goes on and and how complicated it'll get is probably not going to be the most helpful thing. But if you didn't want to stick with your therapist, then you can add an eating disorder dietitian and they can sort of do that. That could be an alternative. It's just something that I pose to, to people in that situation. But I guess in this case, if we're thinking about it conceptually, like this, the uh-huh. CBT stuff, perhaps that is, you know, okay, the dietitian could do the CBT stuff to a certain extent, have your therapist. Although I don't know, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. This it's so sticky. It is sticky, and it it comes up a fair amount. And again, you know, thinking about sort of access to care issues, it's like you know there aren't enough eating disorder specialists to meet the need. So I will say, having said that, I really can't think of a time when that's worked in my experience where you split the therapy. Right. All right. (laughs) But people do do it. I think it's conceptually. Like it's plausible as a thing if it's time limited and that the communication is really good and the the therapist you know the original therapist is really open to it. Yeah, I usually argue that no, you the the referring therapist who wants to off you know outsource the eating disorder work you <laughs> need to figure out how to bring that into your work and you yeah. can do it with support from a dietitian. You do it with a support from a consultant or a supervisor or get some training. Yeah. Um, you don't have to be like a full-on certified expert. 
necessarily, but sure. it's going to be hard to find people like that. But I agree with you, like, like saying, oh, eating issues are a separate, distinct pathway of behaviors and feelings and urges and needs and functional, you know, meanings and all that stuff, totally separate from what I'm doing in my relationships, my life, you know, my other emotions. Right. Yeah. Not, not even true. <laughs> okay. So going back to the the evidence base, before we talk a little bit more about what it means to be a dynamic therapist or practice dynamically, think deeply, whatever you want to call it, how can we sort of highlight some of the limitations of evidence base? I don't want to knock it because obviously it works for a lot of people, but what could be some of the limitations? Meaning like, why doesn't it work for a hundred percent of the people? Well, okay. Just to be fair, nothing works for a hundred percent of people. I know. I was thinking that as I said, I was like, that's not fair. That's, that's not fair. Right. <laughs> and, and it's not even a criticism. I mean, I think we get polarized on this a little bit and yeah. There are deeper issues for that, that, you know, we could take a dynamic perspective on what the conversation's <laughs> about within our field. We can analyze ourselves. We can analyze our own, <laughs> our own conflicts. But, um, you know, to say that CBTE for bulimia or binge eating disorder helps 50%, 40 to 50% FBT, 40 to 50% of people will achieve symptomatic remission through the course of, of that treatment. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. And it, it is good as many of our treatment outcomes in medicine and better than others and, you know, comparable to other psychiatric or behavioral health conditions, it's not bad. And it does mean that, you know, let's just say 50% of people don't achieve remission with it. There is the issue of dropouts. And I think that's important to acknowledge that it's not for everybody. And so I may think that CBTE is the treatment of choice for you for your bulimia nervosa. And I'm going to make that case to you. If you say, you know, I've had other people do it. I've tried it before. I don't like it. What do you do then? And that, that's always sort of like, do you say, well, then I'm go see someone else or that you're the only person within 100 miles. So I think we are, I think, somewhat ethically bound to be prepared to think about what plan B is and even plan C. Mm -hmm. But if you lead with CBTE in this example and it's not working, or the patient says, I really hate this, you don't just sort of withdraw immediately, but you have to sort of be thinking, what else is going on? And you know, like most clinicians who've done this for even more than a month, know that it's very rare, particularly at the higher levels of care, to see someone come in with their eating disorder is the lead issue and not have it be connected to a number of other issues like a mood disorder, anxiety disorder, trauma, substance use, OCD medical conditions, yeah. all sorts of other things, many of which don't get directly addressed in CBTE. Yeah. And that's not by neglect. I think the this is a principled argument, and, and I don't think the jury's in on this. But generally speaking, those in the CBT camp would say, yes, there are all these other comorbidities and issues that may be going on, but we know that if we actually treat the eating disorder and help people stop binging, purging, starving many of those other issues will subside, if not disappear, but they'll definitely subside. And then you go to work on them. So there's more of a sequential, let's really stay laser focused on the eating disorder, because we know that's going to be driving a lot of the instability in these other dimensions. And mm -hmm. people in a more dynamic, integrative, conceptually sort of more complex conceptualizations, we're going to argue, no, we probably need to be working 
concurrently on these things, like thinking like how does the anxiety and the eating disorder and the PTSD hang together? And what are we doing to address all the different factors, not necessarily at the same time, but at least have them on the map. You know, we know that somewhere yeah. in our treatment conceptualization and plan, we're thinking about how we're going to try to link together the trauma experiences or trauma reactions to what's going on with their binging and purging, for example. Yeah. And, and you know, that's no one knows the right answer to that, mm -hmm. but I think there are elements of truth in both perspectives. So because we're sort of dancing around this, let's just jump right into what does it mean to think dynamically, to provide more, I guess, deep work therapy? Like, what does that even mean? If you can define. <laughs> well, I mean, I think this ends up being a conversation rather than like, you know, here's a pithy, condensed, articulate answer to it. As it I always mean, is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and even within, I mean, you know that even within the psychodynamic community, you can't say this is mm -hmm. what it is because you can get into really pretty, you know, significant or arguments with people about is it, are we working on early attachment issues? Are we working on, you know, drive conflicts? Are we working on self-object stuff? Are we working on narcissistic injuries or nar narcissistic development? So the different camps. Broadly, I think in terms of the eating disorder work, it's like, do we have a conceptual model first conceptually? Like, what's going on here? When I sit with this human being who reports mm -hmm. an eating disorder, you know, fractured relationships and anxieties and temperament elements like, you know, perfectionism, grief, loss, cognitive rigidity, emotional inhibition. Like, how do you put all that together? And we've got all sorts of different treatments that can sort of target those specific elements. What I think the psychodynamic model writ large brings is it the richest, most flexible model for trying to put it all together. I like that. Right? So, it's a very generous way to put right. it. So the first thing you for do, us. right, <laughs> yes. And it's it doesn't necessarily dictate what you do next. Like in this mm -hmm. moment, what are we going to focus on? Or, you know, what are we going to do to focus on something? But big picture, like I want, to be able to think, okay, I, I think I have a handle on what the top, I'm going to say the top 10 factors are here. <laughs> so, yeah, well, just in my head and ultimately with the patient, help him or her sort of understand, like, like, I can't tell you how many people I've seen come into even residential levels of care with, you know, their third, fourth admission, right? Literally with a trauma history probably have an inkling that they have PTSD. Someone may have actually said that to them at one point, but nobody helped them link their eating disorder course to their PTSD. It's like, you're sitting there going, what? <laughs> like, like, how did we yeah. not connect these two? And there's genuine amazement from the, you know, the patient client. Like, I've never understood how they hang together like that. And you go like... Really? And there are lots of reasons. One... Our systems aren't set up to do that. We don't train people to do that. There, on some level, is I would guess the patients need to not know that. If you know what I mean, like, like yeah. it's just too much, and that's why they're in treatment. Sure. I think first and foremost, to work dynamically means you think dynamically, you conceptualize dynamically, mm -hmm. and you may then choose depending on where you are in treatment, what level of care, what the patient client's needs are, and so forth to work dynamically 
like you're going to do whatever your thing is. You're going to work in the transference. You're going to look, you know, really focus on the adaptive. Like, what would you have to feel? What would you have to feel if you didn't throw up and really sort of get into that? That's such a good question. And that actually has connections. I mean, the CBTers would hear that question go, yeah, you're talking about avoidance, right? Right. Right. So it's not like they're not addressing the same things. They're just maybe different languages or concepts. But, you know, you might end up with that patient doing a lot of CBT stuff, even though you're thinking dynamically. And then sort of as things settle down, I would say just as a, I don't think we've said this yet, if you're working dynamically with someone with an eating disorder, you have a responsibility to focus on symptom stabilization and nutritional rehab first. That needs to be a priority. I'm old enough that it used to be like, okay, like to basically go, well, she'll regain the weight when she's ready to. When we've worked through the underlying issue, she'll regain the (laughs) weight. Well, no, it wasn't that. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old. (laughs) Like when I trained in the early 80s, basically grad school stuff, that was the dominant perspective. So, it, you know, not wow. really not that long ago, and you can still find pockets mm-hmm. of that. So the dynamic therapist working with eating disorders has to be able to think dynamically, work behaviorally, at least in these yes. early stages, and then thoughtfully pivot back to or start to sort of be able to alternate a little bit back and forth between sort of a dynamic and a cognitive behavioral approach. There's a yeah. wonderful article. Nancy Cloak and Pauline Powers from like 2015, say, on just this issue. Like, how do you, as a dynamic therapist, sort of, we're working behaviorally, cognitively, we're now going to switch back into working more dynamically. How do you talk to a patient about that? How do you prepare them for it? How do you sort of invite them to have comments and reactions to you as Mm -hmm. you make that change, but what they notice being different? So it can be done, but it takes a little more finesse. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely does sound like a a choreographed dance that you have to choreograph as you go, which is obviously not so learnable because it's not, it's not manualized. No. But what's so interesting is that I have found over the years, and especially as we move through experience levels, that the good therapists are just good and they're not necessarily identifying as I do CBT. I am a dynamic therapist. I am this. They just sort of not mimic each other, but they're very similar. CBT people will explore transference and and avoidance and what we might call ego strengthening and they might call behavioral modification. Mm-hmm. We're all doing very similar things, but the good therapist is able to use that finesse and just see who's in front of me. What do we do? How do we think about this in a way that we can pivot whenever we need to? I mean, I think with all the work that's gone into this, that we're still back to that reality that it's very hard. To, <laughs> it's hard to train people to be good therapists that, on the art of therapy. Yeah. You can train people to be really good technically. And there's often yeah. a lot of overlap, but you can deliver. Yeah. I'm sure you've met analytic therapists who are awkward and really not very good at engaging people. Yeah. Well, I was going to say terrible, but that's a nicer way to put it. (laughs) You wonder what happened to them. You want to. (laughs) Why are you giving it away? That's what it's, that's what happens in my brain. (laughs) And then, you know, they're cognitive therapists. Again, I sort of said this earlier, you know, the, the knock on that is, oh, it's manualized and robotic and you have no 
there's no art or nuance to it, which is just not the case. You know, it could be really yeah. moving. I didn't always feel this way. I certainly feel this way now that probably the most moving thing you can help someone do in therapy is change something and be there with them as they do it and sort of help bear witness to it. Yeah. And it doesn't yeah. have to be like, I, I fully retins off my issues with my mother. It's like, I, I went a day without binging. Like how, mm-hmm. how amazing is that? I haven't done that in 15 years. Just that change. And if they could do that because they started keeping records, even though that's not dynamic therapy necessarily, that's awesome. You know? And mm-hmm. you want them then to, obviously, from a dynamic perspective, how do we help them internalize that experience, hold on to that? I now have to think of myself and experience myself as someone who is capable of not binging. What's that do? You know, what else do you have to change now if that's possible? You, I mean, that's not not dynamic therapy to go that way and it's not not cognitive behavioral therapy to get into that so there's a lot of overlap yeah i think what bugs me sometimes is that the way that it's conceptualized to somebody who isn't familiar with this work and for good reason they don't know why would anybody i don't know language from anything besides for this particular part of the field but that when somebody is saying i want this sort of treatment Or do you practice anything evidence-based? It's not evidence-based. All right, I'm going to walk away. Mm -hmm. And doesn't give therapy in general, or whether it's dynamic or just whatever it is, doesn't give it a chance because of these sort of like catchphrases and the fact that evidence-based has been named as gold standard. So they're just sort of like, a well... (laughs) I don't want to, you know, what does my childhood have to do with with anything? That's not relevant and I don't want it to be relevant. So forget it. And throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, that's a big question because it sort of has implications for payers, insurance companies, like requiring certain types of treatment yeah. and right patients, educated patients now coming in saying, this is what I want. I think a therapist these days has to be prepared to answer that question non-defensively. Like, you know, okay, mm-hmm. here's what I do. I do work with aspects of this. This gets into a whole issue, whether can you unbundle CBT and pick, yeah. pick out aspects of it or not. And there are very heated discussions about whether that's responsible or FBT. Can you do elements of FBT? Mm-hmm. But, but all, can you have the parents be in charge of eating, but you're meeting with the kid individually too? That's not typical SBT necessarily. Right. So, but I think personally, I would say something along the lines of like, we focus early on on helping make changes in behavior and thinking to try to build a platform of safety and stability and then see what's left over. It may be that that's that's Mm -hmm. enough and and that's fine. It it may be, but we should have a discussion. It may be that we then find out that there are other things that make it harder to change than it has to be. And it might be worth doing some work on those things. So I I don't, I try to be a little more agnostic about it and not say, I know what we're going to have to do. But like one of the things I try to say to treatment teams as I supervise and trained and so forth is like, if you want to try something new, go for it. But you need to be able to explain to the patient, the family and if I'm your supervisor, to me, the rationale for that. And it can't be because that's what I always do. And it can't be because that's what I like doing or that's what I'm familiar with doing. 
it has to be like, I'm doing this because I think that the best treatment for this person's emotional constriction is, well, RODBT, the best treatment for their personality, their issues with attachment is sort of a transferred space psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there has to be some defensible rationale for why you're doing it, not just like, well, that's what I usually do. Yeah. No, I like that. So in a nutshell, if we were to divide this into two camps, which like we've reiterated a million times, perhaps not so easy to do or not even the point, but evidence-based camp is more behaviors focused and behavior modification. I'd say cognitive. I mean, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's fair. So cognitive modification, how would you? I'd say cognitive behavioral therapy, deep, you know, the different type of cognitive-based therapies would be CBT, DBT, and to some extent ACT, acceptance commitment therapy. Mm -hmm. Like those are all big picture sort of of the same model, the cognitive model, Mm -hmm. as opposed to psychodynamic therapy, which would be more, I'd say, holistic or integrated in terms of, you know, also emotions, needs, longings, desires, fears, sort of the deeper stuff, you know. Yeah. And and in essence, understanding the function of the understanding so all this right. was, was behind right. it. Uh, but I think what's so important is that part of this in order to do it is to create distance from yourself and the behaviors, which obviously the behavior modification in the beginning mm-hmm. does so that you can begin to put some pieces together. One of the fundamental splits, and I certainly don't have the answer to this, but you know, CBT, I mean, they're working on this inherent contradiction, but like CBT clearly prioritizes the rational over the emotional, right? Because the whole model is one way or the other. It's like, we're going to leverage the power of your frontal lobes to build your awareness of what's going on and the feelings you're having so you can make different decisions, like, you know, change your thinking about that. And that gets you a long way. There's a whole train of school thought that rationality is vastly overrated and that what really drives people is like, People are like feeling and reacting and then they create the thought to explain what's going on. And, mm-hmm. you know, personally speaking right now, the model that I think is better positioned to deal with that second model is the psychodynamic model. Like, you know. Yeah. It, it, well, right. not biased, but I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> but I also, again, I stressed this earlier, stress it again, just like if you're going to be doing this work, you know, working in the eating disorder world with patients at various levels of care and your dynamic therapist, you need to sort of not be a purist about it. You need to be very comfortable in talking about food, behaviors, compensatory behaviors, dietary restriction. Absolutely. And be able to think, okay, what else is going on here? You know, and mm-hmm. generally speaking, if someone's restricting their eating, I don't know, nine, eight times out of 10, a lot of the time, you know, that's not the only pattern of restriction. It could be there, you know, there's something going on in their relationships or they're they're afraid to express other parts of who they are and that this is sort of overlapping or, or you know, weaving together a bunch of different restrictive patterns. Absolutely. I feel as a dynamic therapist, you can talk about the implications of whatever you do. Like if I say to a patient, like, you really do, like, why aren't you keeping dietary logs? And you want to get into that? You know, the CBT therapist, this is very interesting, I think. CBT therapists always get patients to keep their dietary logs. And psychodynamic therapists will try it and then like, 
at the first hint of reluctance, it's like, oh, well. <laughs> and, you know, patients surprisingly don't do it. And Wait, is that true? Do CBT therapists get their patients to do the log? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, you know, I just thought that no one was able to do that. No, because no, if you don't sell it, if you don't actually explain why it's important, I think it's obviously not true all the time, but I think in general, it's pretty accurate that if you're not really believing that it's going to be effective, that's going to be communicated, you know, and, and I hear that. You know, and I think a dynamic therapist would sort of look at someone not doing records and want to interpret that as resistance and and so forth and get into like that sort of stuff. But you might also want to really just double down on why it's important to start to use that to build patterns and you know build the the model for you know what makes you vulnerable to binge eating or whatever. Yeah. Interesting. Can we say it's both maybe that there's something that stops this person from filling it out and we can encourage them? Of course. Hundred percent. I'm just saying that the dynamic therapist probably wouldn't go back to an explanation of the cognitive model of why the record keeping is important. They'd go right to, you know, what does it mean that you're not, let's talk about what it means that you're not doing this. Oh, you know? okay, fine, yeah, yeah. fine. I'll accept that. That is true. <laughs> Guilt is charged. <laughs> me, me too. I mean, absolutely. Me too. So it's not just you. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's the same thing when anybody says, oh, I'm just lazy. That's why, you know, uh, or I just procrastinate. It's just my type. And um, I don't know. I I don't really accept that. You can, sure, that can be a pattern that you experience your entire life, but there's something stopping you from being able to do whatever it is that you want or need to do. And without having a conversation about it, shedding light on it, then we're missing a big piece. So I don't know. I feel like I'm doing you a disservice if we don't have that conversation. Absolutely. Even though people are like, oh my God, are you asking me this again? Are you asking me why I'm asking you this again? And then they ask themselves the question because they know it's coming. <laughs> well, but then, you know, <laughs> we role play this a little bit. I'd be inclined because as I've gotten older, I'm more of a smart ass than I used to be. Like I feel freer to be smart. Really? You weren't you weren't a smart ass when you were I, younger? I was very what? I was very proper and like, but I feel like it's part of your personality. Now it is. I, I had to grow into okay. it. <laughs> A lot of therapy. But, you know, I'd say some version of like, let's talk about why you're putting me in a position of having to be a hard ass on this, you know? Yeah, you know, that's a very good point. We can obviously talk about this all day. And I think that there's so much more to talk about with the dynamic stuff and and the intricacies of how it works. But let's pause here because I think there's a lot to digest for people. And first of all, thank you so much for your wisdom, your time, your smart ass. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I actually enjoyed this a lot. It's a lot of fun. And these are interesting issues to think about. And I just welcome the opportunity to talk a bit about them. Yeah. And and I hope that people will continue to talk about this stuff because I think that sometimes without enough information, people get the wrong idea. And that my hope is that now the right idea. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.